0: What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ. The first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello
1: Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. We're barreling towards the end of the year, you guys. It's mid-December. Can you believe it? Mid-December 2021. Thank God is almost gone. Whew, man. 2020 and 2021. Sorry, sorry 20s. You are coming in like a motherfucker. We are happy to get to 2022. Let's see what happens. Um... Really fun show today with my old pal, Liz Winstead, who is the co-creator of The Daily Show, having its 25th anniversary this year. Hard to believe The Daily Show's been on 25 years. Many people don't know that two women created The Daily Show, so one of them. Liz Winstead is here to talk about that, and she's also a very passionate activist um, out there, particularly for... Uh, The abortion issue, which uh, she's been on the forefront for a while. So we're going to talk about that issue with Liz, too. Um, We had a really good conversation about it, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So it took up most of the time here, too. So I have encouraged you guys to send me um, notes like, what would you like me to talk about, questions, that kind of stuff. And... We'll do that in the next couple of weeks towards the end. I'd like to have, it'd be great to do a whole episode on that. So please keep sending me that stuff. Some stuff I think I've answered um, through uh, tweeting already. But there's, uh, you guys have some good stuff coming at me. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I don't mind being challenged on things like that. I just, to respectfully disagree to me is, I have no problem. It's the disrespectful disagreements is where we get into issues. But what are you going to do? People get passionate. I understand it. I ain't mad at you. Whatever. um, What's happening in the world right now? The Jesse Smollett thing is the funniest thing to me that's been going on. Because uh, it was just ridiculous. And I talked about that before, so I don't even want to go into it. But uh, And I thought it was over. I didn't even know when I heard there was a trial going on a couple weeks ago. I thought all that stuff was done. But that was so sad in so, so many different ways. The biggest thing is the whole thing that he was fighting for is how people um, who are LGBTQ, let alone people of color, how they can maybe be attacked and this type of thing. He just undermined that whole thing with his actions. So stupid, you know. Like, If you really care about that cause, don't be faking shit to try to prove a point. There there are way too many people that have actually gone through the thing that you're talking about that you can shine a light on rather than you know, as a typical actor, making it about yourself with some made up thing. I mean, that is the, the um, ultimate in narcissism, you guys. I care about this issue, but I'm going to make it about me, too, at the same time, and just pretend something happened. Ugh, so terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not going to do much today. I'll, I'll answer one question, though. This was from Abiola at hot not the mama (laughs) on twitter i'm not sure what that means but i I like that handle it's very good and she kind of made a statement i guess it's kind of a question she said uh larry one there's not both sides to everything it's the most frustrating thing to hear from someone with the platform um thank you very much for that statement um i've heard that type of thing from people before and I'll tell you what, let me clarify how I approach things because I understand where you're coming from. But let me clarify what I think it's in regards to and why what I do, I feel is a little different. I generally agree with you. There's not both sides to everything, but I will qualify that by saying most of the time what we're talking about are what I feel are political arguments and political arguments are by design, by design, very much uh, created. To eliminate both sides discussions, you know, especially modern political arguments, that's just the nature of them, you know, what I engage in more is opinion, you know, and where people are coming from and how people approach the world. What is our relationship to things that are actually happening to us on more of a personal level. And so I don't feel there are both sides to those. I feel there are many sides to most issues, not both sides to most issues. Most issues have many sides. More than two, by the way. Many, many, many sides because we're all so different. And so what I try to do in my work is I try to get out of just the binary political arguments where you can make that both sides argument and open it up and have a broader discussion about how more complex people are and how we approach these things from so many different perspectives and points of view. And somehow they get, you know, corralled into having to agree with a real general political statement, like if you're on the left, you may have a very nuanced view of something, but you're forced to agree with whatever the consensus political argument is, and you may have some disagreements with it, but generally agree with it. That makes your agreement more nuanced than just what that statement is. But if you're just dealing with the political statement, you know, then yeah, you could get, you know, locked into a both sides type of argument. So many times, and also I think the the both sides criticism I believe um, shuts down a lot of debate too. So I'm not a fan of criticizing both sides. Um, the both sides dynamic, where how dare you invite both sides? Because many times that just shuts down debate. You know, and and I get it. So when people think the both sides thing, they think of Trump and some of the excesses on the right and how those people shouldn't have a platform and why would you listen to them anyway? They don't deserve to be heard. There's only one thing, blah, blah, blah. And for the most part, yes, I agree, guys. That is right. But that is not where I'm coming from. I'm not making that kind of just the basic argument. I want us to be able to view the world from a more complex lens, that there's more than just that binary side that you're forced to be on, you know? And there's so many issues that are so complex. And the only way that I think we can get to consensus on things and move forward with things is understanding the complexity of issues and not being forced into shallow arguments about those issues. That's where I come from on that. I don't defend the both sides the way that it's presented out there. Not at all. I'm not a, not a fan of it. I'm a defender of the many sides point of view. There are many ways to that people come to an argument. They come to it from many different points of view, their family history, their religious history, their upbringing, their communities, their culture, sometimes racial culture or, or country culture or whatever. There are many different ways, many different starting points that people have. Gender, huge starting point, you know? So we all have different starting points. We all go through the starting gate differently and we all come at it from different points of view. and. Understanding the complexities of our journey sometimes can get us to better solutions to, you know, the problems that are in front of us. But when we get into political arguments and we're forced to agree with blanket statements, (laughs) those rarely lead, from my point of view at least, to really, really good solutions. You just have to kind of accept what the kind of patchwork thing is. So there you go. That's my answer that's my answer in a nutshell. Um, keep sending those statements and questions. That's a very good one. Uh, at hot, not the mama. <laughs> I appreciate that. I really appreciate your comment. That's great. And right now we, uh, got Liz Winstead coming up. So see you in a second. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family, Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back everybody. This is an OG from my days of stand-up and daily show. (laughs) One of the funniest people and most passionate people in our business, guys. I'm telling you, I so admire this uh, woman because, you know, she's just done so much. She's very humble about everything she's done and the things that she continues. You have to ask her, what's going on? What, have you, what are you doing? <laughs> give, yourself some, give, give this woman some flowers, is what I'm saying. She deserves some flowers. We're going to try to give her some flowers today. The co-creator of The Daily Show, and it is the 25th anniversary, I believe, this year. So we're going to talk about that. But also, she's the founder of the Abortion Access Front, and her work uh, as an activist is just very inspiring. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Liz Winstead, welcome to Black on the Air. Well, I thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. It is so nice to have you here. You are one of the purely funny people out there and passionate and stand behind what you do at the same time. It's one of the things that I really love about you, Liz. Authentic is what we call that.
2: That's so nice because often people just call me shrill. Shrill. (laughs) (laughs) They just like to write it off.
1: When you're fighting for women, they're going to have to marginalize you in some kind of way, right?
2: So many kinds of ways. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh
1: before we get to that, let's I want to start with uh, your work in comedy and the daily show and all that. And we may as well start from the beginning as because you were also a really, really funny stand-up comic. And Liz, how did you get started in comedy? You're from Minneapolis, right? You're just talking about that.
2: I think a lot of people don't realize that um Minneapolis it has been one of the strongholds Absolutely. of comedy. Huge. For a lot of years. And so...
1: Not only a lot of good comedians came out of there, it's a great town for doing comedy, too. Some of the best crowds were always in Minneapolis, too.
2: A hundred percent. And so, you know, I was somebody who, like, it sounds really, I don't know what it sounds, but... You know, I'm the youngest of five kids in my family, yes. never got a word in edgewise, right, right, just, right, right. just looking for some place <laughs> to like <laughs> say some things uninterrupted and also just brought up Catholic and and also a super curious kid. And I think that we don't talk about curiosity enough because I I view curiosity as a vital organ. Mm-hmm. And so when you're curious about something and you want to try it or do it or go for it and there's just yeah. barriers in the way and adults are so shitty at giving you good reasons because usually there yeah. aren't any that it just fueled me to be like, I was going to teach history. That was my plan. I really love history. My dad mm-hmm. was a World War II vet and I he oh. shut down about it. And I just wanted to learn about his experience. And I thought I have to study it if he's not going to talk to me. Yeah. Um, so then somebody dared me to do stand-up. They're like, You're kind of a cynic. You should just get on stage. Wow. And I and I did it on a dare. And a really great comedian named Jeff Cesario, who is a really very funny
1: guy. Jeff is awesome, yeah.
2: Awesome. Was hosting mm-hmm. this open mic because he was what he was like one of the big guys in the 80s in, yeah. in the Twin Cities. And Larry, it was like I understand the word calling like I never understood it religiously, wow. but it was like, this is my thing. Like, this is what I'm going to do. You knew that the first time you went up? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But the thing that's fascinating is so when you talk to a lot of stand-ups, they'll tell you that they killed their first time because you're adrenaline and the that's audience right. is rooting for you. Yep. And, the, and the MC is like, it's their right. first time. Right. So then you are a total asshole and think that you are great. (laughs) Right,
1: right, right. right?
2: And your second time, you totally tank.
1: That's exactly right. That's what happened to me. And
2: then the third time, you do just okay.
1: Exactly. So then you
2: have to try it the fourth time. And that could go either way. Yeah. And then cut to 35 years later. I'm still doing it to see if I should still do it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. There is that baby period where you know, when you're born, everybody's celebrating your birth, you know, but then <laughs> you're a baby, you know, you're actually yeah. a baby. You have no idea what you're doing yeah. and learning all of it, uh, when it. In my early days of stand-up, Liz, it was so funny. I, You know, back when I started off, I did a lot of emceeing because that's how you learn to be a stand-up too, you know, and it's a, it's a great thing to emcee because you can try out bits in between and that kind of stuff. So, this was like, I had been doing it for maybe six months, not that long at all. And I was trying everything on stage, right? And uh, I did this bit. I, I can't even remember the bit. But it was something I had to commit to fully for like a few minutes, which I didn't realize. Larry, that's death. Because in the first 10 seconds, if it isn't working, you've committed yourself for the next Last yes. few minutes, and it died the death of deaths, of course, you know, and I remember I usually wore my contacts in those days, but I was wearing glasses. My glasses started fogging up. that's a horrible I was dying, you know, oh my it was, God, it was horrible. audience hated me, and every time I came up to introduce somebody, you could just feel the hate come back, like love would express itself for a comic, I come on, hate would come back. It was it was so horrible. I I went home crying that night. Uh, just wanting I'm not going to do this anymore. But because we're basically toddlers, I forgot about it the next day. Yes, exactly. of course. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, it's so funny. I'll never forget having that very experience. And I was talking to the headliner after the show, and this guy walks up and he goes, "Man, you were great!" To the headliner, and then he looks at me, realizing he has to say something. Goes, oh no! He goes, "And you were there too." <laughs>
1: Oh god. Let me ask you this. One. What were some of your key jokes in the beginning? Cuz something I talk about is indicators. And what are what indicators are to me? Um like in in the broad sense, sometimes there there are things outside of yourself which tell you you're on the right track. Like a good review is an indicator, you know, that type of thing. So in stand up, sometimes indicators are quality jokes, I'll call them. Not not laughs. But quality jokes, which tell you, "Okay, this is an indicator that I'm on the right track. Do you remember like any jokes from early on where you said, oh, that's that's the thing. That is a great joke. And it kind of stayed in the act for a while.
2: Yeah. One joke was um, I went to college for four years and studied philosophy. I think therefore I'm single. That was a Very big nice. one that they yeah. really liked. Um, and uh, another joke. That actually was, is like
1: a almost a three meaning joke.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's oh. a lot of. Uh, and then I remember a joke being, you know, women are oppressed in the Catholic church when the highest rank is called none.
1: <laughs> Very nice.
2: And then another one was when my mom came over to my first apartment and found my diaphragm I told her it was a bathing cap for my cat. (laughs) So now we're going back. People don't even use diaphragms anymore. (laughs) They don't even
1: know what it is. What is a diaphragm? It's
2: an old ass (laughs) vagina joke. Dust that off. (laughs) Yeah. So those are some, you know, that kind of like, because I started out as an observational comic. I didn't start out as a political comic. I was a political person. Yes. And I think. Honestly, one of the things that was a trajectory for me as far as like offering me the opportunity to not give a fuck, if you will, was Mm -hmm. I'll never forget. I I had this joke in my act where I said. Great Danes should really have to wear underwear in public. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) And
2: so I would just say it like that. Right.
1: That's so funny. And
2: then all of a sudden it stopped working. All of a sudden, that stopped working. And I was like, I should record my set. And I wasn't really recording my sets, but I decided that I would record my set three times and then not listen to it until to see what was going on. And what I did was I started saying just unconsciously, I think Great Danes should have to wear underwear in public. And when I started saying assertively, I think, the audience didn't want to hear it anymore. Like I, it like, and I was like, if I'm a woman saying I'm, I think, and people are mad about that. And then the, and the punchline is about a dog's balls. Like I might as well say things I think about for real. If they're going to get mad, I might as well just say some things.
1: I think therefore I'm single. It was your first joke actually kind of uh, was precedent about that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so it just really,
1: that's fascinating. It was
2: really fascinating. And you know, like, it can't be said enough, but like, and we've evolved tremendously. But mm-hmm. in the 1980s, being a woman who took the stage and and decided that her opinions mattered was a radical act, just no matter what.
1: What was the expectation, not necessarily from the audience, but let's say like from the bookers and mm. comedy club people, like what kind of female comic, quote unquote, did they really like in those days?
2: Well... The thing that I heard all the time, and I, I acquiesced for a while fighting against talking about just my space in the world, you know? And so bookers were like, we like you because you don't talk about being a woman, Ah, right? And I used to
1: get that for the black Uh, You don't do that black stuff. Motherfucker, what's that black stuff? You mean stuff about me?
2: I don't walk the world through any other lens than this one i live.
1: Exactly. And
2: so I was forcing material that was just observational for the sake of it. And I'm not a good joke writer. You know, like when Mm -hmm. you see people who are just really great craftsmen, um, I'm not that. And so I just started getting real pissed. And then Uh, I just started talking about the world through my own lens and then you add politics on and people were mad, but then, you know, they put you into those like, and I bet you've had this exact experience Mm because I've talked to other black comics about it. Yep. So it's either all lady shows, right. Right. So that we can just satisfy that for a minute, but you would never have two women and a dude because the two women would obviously have the exact same act because we're the exact same people with the exact same experiences. And, you know, are people going to like what you have to say? I'm like, well, probably, probably they are. If you would just give them an opportunity to hear it. But also the club owners were lazy ass garbage people. You know, they would like put out an ad in the, in the clubs and be like, from Evening at the Improv and HBO and some other shitty 30-minute show that we all did, right. that tells you nothing, that you could be getting Joe Rogan, you could be getting me, you don't know. And there was this dope club owner who named Jeff Gilstrap, and he died, and it was so tragic, but he had a, this great club in Lexington, Kentucky, one of the best clubs in the country. Oh, wow. And when, when I would go work there, he, he took out a full-page ad in the paper that said, if you like Mitch McConnell, you will hate this woman. That's and I just awesome. got every liberal in Kentucky coming to the shows. And Very it was really, nice. and he really cared about and understood that his that's
1: unusual. Yeah. His,
2: it was his club was a vessel for who was going to fill it that week. And yeah. he didn't force me to do the country Western station that they had to deal with. Every- yes,
1: exactly. I remember those things. Oh. Yeah. Um, And
2: he'd call NPR. He'd call like, you know, WBAI. And he was the greatest guy. Like if club owners would curate and create that space, it would be comedy would be so
1: much better. So it's funny you had those instances where it kind of helped you to be in the lane that you naturally should have been in, uh, which for a lot of the white guy comics, not to pick on you guys, but you didn't. You could be the white guy comics could be in any lane they wanted to be and no one questioned it. You know, right? like you would never see a black comic being a prop comic. There was just something (laughs) like, why is he why is he a prop comic? That's weird. You know, (laughs) right. You know, that type of thing. But white guys could be any lane. Like for me, I did a combination of things. I did politics. I did absurd comedy. I did all my uh, uh racial commentary that was kind of absurdist a bit, you know, and that type of stuff. And people didn't know what to do with me at the time. But the audiences always loved me, you know, I always was yes. great. But it was the bookers that just didn't know what to do because they always want to put you in a box, you know.
2: Well, and they always think there's something to do. And it's like, we are not monolithic. Humans are not monolithic. And there was this uh presupposition that the white male experience was going to be universally loved. Right. Whether the person was funny or not. And I was very much the same way, Larry, where I'd be like, I talk about, you know, my womanness. I would talk about politics. I would talk about weirdness. I would talk about my family. And that's what people want. They want to, they want the they person. Want, yeah. I mean, why do you think there is magazines like Vanity Fair, you yeah. know, so that you can have pop culture, you can have uh, politics, you can have, you know, like, that's why those things exist. And so people love to see the totality of a human warts and all. They think it's fun.
1: Yeah. Did you enjoy doing stand up in those days?
2: I did. And I still do. But I think I, I enjoy it more now that I get to do it uh, when I want um, on my own terms. I've developed an audience where they'll come and hear what I have to say. And I love when people are like, what do you do? You know, (laughs) aren't you just preaching to the choir? And I'm like, well, honestly, 70 million people in this country are white supremacists. So if the choir needs some songs, I'm fine to give it to them, but you'd never walk into a butcher shop and go, why aren't you selling fish here? Like all you're selling is meat,
1: but you also uh a priest doesn't go to a temple and start preaching to a different choir, you know? Right. So of course he preaches to their their own choir. makes sense.
2: (laughs) You know how, when you eat pepperidge farm cookies, Paula Ponstone's got the best joke about it. You know, you just eat them without comprehension. I feel like people just speak without comprehension now, you know, they just have a whole, you know, cookie basket full of shit they think they're supposed to say and they just say it and then they look down and they've run out of things to say so then they just say it again and it's like have you formulated a thought or did you just hear that and that sounded good and so now you're gonna say that
1: i think to me the analogy is like when we're comics and you get a heckler you will always win because you have a microphone and you're louder you know Mm -hmm. i mean of course you're smarter because you're a professional you're funnier already but let's say they were funny they're still going to lose because you're louder because of the yes. microphone. So, and people don't realize that it's a technical thing of why you're always going to win too because you just you your voice is going to sound more dynamic than their little squeaky yell or whatever. So, it's an unfair fight from the beginning, let alone you have more tools. Now, social media unfortunately has given the heckler a microphone, you know. <laughs> and so they can the sound can sound as loud as the performer even though it's not equal. You know, they've They've uh, fashioned themselves critics, but they're not. They're they're comments. Comments aren't the same as critique. You know, people think comments are the same as critique, but it's not. It's just comments.
2: But I also feel, too, the way that I've dealt with that on the Internet is I just then, instead of dominating like you do in a club, I'll just pull back and say, who hurt you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) like and i also have a theory in life in general anyways if you're not feeding me fucking me or paying me your opinion is at the bottom of the barrel so when you constantly just check in is that person feeding me fucking me or paying me nope then why would i care what they think i don't so (laughs) i don't care
1: i like that list it's a very good list now after so after a while, you found yourself transitioning into television, like as a producer and that sort of thing. You, uh, how, how did you make that transition? What was that about?
2: So um, there used to be a show on Comedy Central called Women Allowed. Mm-hmm. And the brilliant Mo Gaffney was the host. And it was a talk show. And it was on for th- three seasons. And, and the first two seasons, I did stand up on the show like three different times. And then season three, she asked me if I wanted to be the head writer there was only two writers. And so I didn't know what it was, but I said, sure. So um, I just wrote bits on that show and sort of learned how to Mm -hmm. do that. And then just started writing here and there. And then I was doing just a tiny bit of like commentary and comedy central and stuff like that. But then what happened was I moved into a brownstone in Chelsea on the same day Madeline Smithberg did. And she was my downstairs neighbor. Mm. And I'd worked with John. We wrote a pilot together that didn't get picked up and knew him from stand up and stuff. And so she was, Madeline was the producer of the John Stewart syndicated show. Mm. And so I was doing this one woman show that I was, i uh, just done uh workshopped in Boston and Minneapolis and I was trying to launch it in New York and I was flat ass broke. And uh, she was like, do you want to be a segment producer on the John Stewart show? And I was like, I don't know what that is, but okay. <laughs> So um,
1: (laughs) so I was like,
2: is that money? And I get to work with John. Great. So I just produced the guest segments on the Jon Stewart show. And then that show got canceled. And our bosses, this was an MTV Networks production. And so they got hired to run Comedy Central. John got snatched up in a two-year deal with Letterman's company. Yeah. Because Letterman didn't want him on the market. This is my theory.
1: And by the way, people should know. Jon Stewart in those days was kind of the butt of a joke where, you know, if you couldn't get somebody to host it, Jon Stewart would host it, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, it was kind of a joke in the 90s, which no one can relate to now, you know? Isn't that bizarre, you know? Uh, So bizarre. And so then our
2: bosses called, Madeline and I, over at Comedy Central, and they Mm -hmm. put us in a development deal, and we were developing this other wacky show. And they said, no, seriously, what we want to do is we really want to launch a flagship show oh. and we want you guys to do it. And I was like, oh my God, I have been doing my act had transition to politics. My one woman show was like all about the media mm-hmm. and politics. And so I said, I think it would be cool to do a show where the show was also a character, you know, the, Ooh, the, the way it looks, mm-hmm. we don't nod. Um, and that we, we run it like a newsroom, but work it like a comedy show. So the funniest Mm -hmm. people I knew, my boyfriend at the time was, um, a guy named Brian Unger, who was one of the first correspondents on the daily show. Um, and he was working at CBS news. And so I was like, you complain constantly about your job. Like you literally went, had to cover the OJ trial and the Jeffrey Dahmer trial. And you want out. Do you want, like, do you want to like burn the bridge? And come and teach people how to do this. And he was like, yes, I'm ready. So he brought us editors and all these people. He taught, I mean, Brian Unger is the person who invented Stephen Colbert. Like he helped Stephen become that, that eyebrow, that look, that whole Daily Show correspondent, Brian Unger was the dude that really just set
1: the tone for it. So, did you and Madeline have an elevator pitch for this? Like, did you say, "Okay, here's what the show is," or just kind of did this? It kind of evolves as well. So, we
2: just started saying what we thought it should be.
1: So, there was a loose idea that
2: they wanted a show every day. That's what they wanted. He kind of wanted Sports Center. He kind of wanted Sports it. Center, mm-hmm. and I was like. And me going nah was the first. That like, <laughs> was like it wasn't. It was kind of like a network. Liz not so great after that. I was like, well, also there is Sports Center. Yes, like exactly. don't bring me in and tell me you want me to make something for you that's already on. I don't want to do that. Right. So and I also just thought the world was garbage and the news was garbage. I did a whole one woman show about the media talking mm. about fake news in 1992. You know, wow. and so, so. The craziest thing was uh, they went along with everything. Madeline had big chops as a talk show producer. Mm -hmm. I had not a chop. There was no chops. And they said, do you want to be the head writer? And I was like, "Okay, uh, why not? I've had I know a million people who have said yes and worked their way through it. Absolutely. But But here's the craziest thing, Larry. And for your folks who who aren't TV savvy, this is giant. The network said, this show, we don't want to pilot this show. We're going to give you a year on the air. Wow. To grow. That's so great. So that you That's can develop. Amazing. Yeah. It, it was, it's why the show has been on for 25 years because how it evolved, how the correspondence evolved, uh, the direction John took it after Kilbourne, yeah. all of those things would never have been possible if there wasn't a foundation that you could change it up, you know? And so that foundation and us really being able to work on that format, hone sort of what it meant to be a daily show correspondent, Mm -hmm. so that people who could come forward could add their own ideas to what that was like and what that meant.
1: Now in those early days, um, like I like to call the D- Daily Show now it's something else entirely too. It's this is like it's in its third phase now, but in those days I look at it as a parody of the of newscast, and I think when John kind of made it his thing, I feel like it became a satire of news, you know. And uh, Trevor's thing now seems more of a his commentary on the world uh, yeah. more than yeah. It's not really about news anymore so much as. It's more of Trevor's commentary as he's making it his show. But in in those days, is that how you guys saw it as more of a parody?
2: When I think of satire, I think of the early Daily Show because we never broke character. We became those people. It was Mm -hmm. more like the Colbert show where everybody was in on it. There was no breaking, really, of that. When I look at John, I think it was a hybrid of... John became the voice of the people
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: surrounded by these satirical like news monsters who (laughs) were right, who he was like, well, that can't be right.
0: No, no, it is,
1: John. You know, so he personalized it, whereas Kilborn was reading the prompter, really, of what? Oh,
2: 100 percent reading the prompter.
1: No slam against Craig, but that's what he was doing, you know,
2: and I and he was hired to fill a role.
1: Right. right, As a character,
2: he wasn't hired to be Craig Kilborn, the guy from he came from SportsCenter. He wasn't hired to be the guy from SportsCenter. He was hired to be that guy that you weren't quite sure. Is he in on it? Is he not? Is he a prompter monkey? Is he smart? And that was kind of the fun of it for people to be like, who is this guy? Because I think people think that about news anchors all the time or did back then in the 90s. Right. Um, And it was also, I think, something to remember is. We launched with the media we had. Mm-hmm. And and the, as the media evolved, then so did the dynamic of the correspondence, what right. that looked like and all that stuff. And back then, when we launched the show, there was 17 news magazines
1: on network television. There was not even Fox News when you started, right? Or Or it started at the same time, approximately. It
2: started almost immediately after. So we launched in July at the end of July or like 3 weeks later MSNBC launched and then in October of that year Fox News launched
1: wow Look yeah wow.
2: yeah and so we were dealing with news magazine shows yeah. local shows and you know there was just CNN and CNN was like trial of the century of the week <laughs> and and That's like right. car chases That's right. and like That's right. you know there was no news and so we were satirizing the fact that there was it was such garbage, you know, yeah. and the weather thing was huge. And they were, it was just like insane what they were doing. And, and I think thinking about that was, was really. MSNBC launched with like Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram, I think had a show together and Alan Keyes had a show. Wow. on MSNBC and these like, it was wild. And, uh, and then Fox happened. And then, you know, the can of worms opened up to where, it was this desperation ploy to have people at least be exposed to how ridiculous it is and hopefully have them think about looking at the news in a different way.
1: And what happened with you in the show? Did, I think I read somewhere once where you actually had a vision for the show that was more of what it became. But was it kind of frustrating to try to do that while you were there? Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, they really wanted it to be more pop culture uh, like a pop culture news show. And oh, I was okay. like, no one's going to remember that. No one's going to stay with that. And also if you want to have celebrities on, why do you want to shit on them on the show? <laughs> yeah, You're not going right. to get good celebrities. That's just like a bad plan, yeah. but also um, why not do a news parody? Like, and I, and I knew for me doing my one woman shows and doing my stand up, I knew there was a hunger for it and that yeah. people would want to see it and that they were frustrated. And so it was a big battle with the network, you know, and they just always thought I was like a nightmare because I'd be like, no, I don't think so. And I'd fight shrill. back a lot. And I was very shrill
0: <laughs> and, you know,
2: and probably also quite frankly, since I was new, I'm sure I wasn't very diplomatic
1: in your defense, Liz. And I was not working with you then. once again, sorry, white boys, but I will, I have to use you guys again. I've seen so many people with less experience, the white guys who have been more, obstinate and fought for a vision and they got what they wanted and nobody called them anything except brilliant.
2: Yep, exactly. And I, and I, and I think like, and the good news is like I had such a great relationship with my team Hmm. because the truth be told is that everybody that was hired there wanted to shit all over the power structure that was. And, and so I said to everybody like, Write the jokes you think are the best. I'll defend if I think it's good. I will never let you hang. And I can't promise you I'm going to get it on. But I would, and they knew that I'd fight for their material.
1: Was there resistance from uh, Kilbourne about the that type of stuff?
2: No, yeah, no, I don't even think he knew what he was. He
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, sometimes he would have resistance to it, you know, um, but, but um, and I think that. Uh, you know, sometimes I think he thought we were trying to pull something over on him if he didn't understand the material when when we weren't. And I remember having a conversation with him when he was like, not psyched about something and thinking that I was trying to set him up. And I said, Craig, like, this is my (laughs) dream show. Like, please understand, like this, this show succeeding means more to me than any single thing in the world. So if you fail, I fail. you have to fundamentally understand that I can't make you understand it, but you need to know that that is, that is where I'm coming from. You don't have to like me, but you need to understand that. And that's when people, are. and and this is the thing that's so weird, Larry, is that after I left and people were like, how do you feel that the daily show got so much more popular? Like as though I'd be like mad or bitter. And I was like, (laughs) I feel thrilled because whenever I do something, I just get to say, like, first of all, people think, oh, it's going to be if Liz is doing it, it's not going to be dumb. Mm -hmm. It's going to be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And I get to just throw that into the mix. And it explains things instantly. To have something on the air for 25 years gives me a confidence that my instincts were correct.
1: Absolutely. That's your baby. Yeah.
2: And if you have that, you're not afraid to fail. Yeah. And you're not afraid that if you do fail, that it's going to define you because you'll just get up and do something all over again. Yeah. You know, it's sort of the falling down when your backpack's too heavy theory, you know, it's mortifying on the street for like 35 seconds, everyone's looking at you. And then an hour later, you don't remember you did it. And like, you just move on, like, just keep going.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people who say those, they can't relate to the act of creation and what that is. And yeah, when, when you do that, that's when that's what you do and you're involved in that. Um, That's what you're always trying to do. You're trying to find a voice for something. So you're not looking in the rear view that like most people are. You're not trying to hold on to something. Your job is to create something. You know, Yeah. And
2: after true. I left, you know, John asked me to come back twice. And I was like, you don't need me. Like having the two of us here, like you got this.
1: Why did you leave?
2: Oh, I left. I mean, you can read about why I left. I left because, you know. It was a circumstance like that was pretty crappy where, Mm -hmm. you know, Kilburn said some shit about me in a magazine. He said that I was hired to give him a blowjob. And that's the only reason I was there. And um, it got really ugly. And I was like, you want to know what? If you're going to say that kind of stuff, then now we're not going to be able to have a great relationship.
1: Yeah, that's not a joke.
2: It's not a joke. And it's also, I loved the show so much Mm -hmm. that I didn't want to, act like I was a bigger person and wouldn't participate in the toxicity of somebody doing that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, So I left.
1: And John reached out to you a couple of times to bring you back, you said, right?
2: Yeah. You know, and I just was like, you got this, you know, and I wanted Mm -hmm. to put other things like that in the world. Yes. You know, and I was really lucky. Exactly. I, you know, I got to I got to launch Air America Radio Absolutely. and do and do a show with Rachel Maddow and Chuck D. Like yes. that was so fun. And 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 to bring Mark Marin to the world and to yes. bring Janine and Sam theater and you know, it was really it was really cool to to just do those things and just, you know, write a book and yeah. and then, you know, use my comedy to pursue my passions. It's if if I just sat back and And stewed in my own oppression. I mean, I just—I mean, we could all do that. You know, we could all do that. And so that's why when I hear about cancel culture and all this other shit, like, I just—I really don't have a whole lot of time for people who are just, yeah, basically. Overprivileged people who are mad that the cool people don't like them anymore when they have audiences of jillions still. Right. You weren't canceled. You made some decisions and your audience shifted. That's not being canceled. That's called you are now on a different shelf in the store. And I'm sorry about that, but you're on that shelf
1: now and you're flying off the shelves, (laughs) but not to the right people. The zeitgeist is very tricky. It's very tricky. It, <laughs> it is very own, tricky. It's, it's its own animal. Nobody has been able to manipulate it completely. You know, you sometimes you line up, but the zeitgeist says, sorry, motherfuckers, <laughs> we're going over here. You go, no, Zeitgeist. But there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, I've known that for years.
2: And also, it's a it's a it's a fickle bedfellow. It so, is. you know, don't exactly. act like the zeitgeist is a thing. So fuck the zeitgeist.
1: Be the zeitgeist, be your own zeitgeist. You had fun with the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And by the way, who wants to be in the zeitgeist for for too long anyway? Honestly, I think uh I know this sounds philosophical, you guys, but there really is something when you're in the middle of the zeitgeist, which means what you're doing is popularly accepted as the thing to be doing right now. I'll just make up a definition for it, okay? And when you're outside of the zeitgeist, it doesn't mean you're different or whatever, it just means whatever is popularly accepted right now, you're not necessarily in that target. Which is fine. It doesn't make you less of a performer or not funny or whatever. You know, like there are some comics who never stop being funny, they're just not a Zeitgeist. You know, there's some mm-hmm. artists that didn't they might have been making great art, just Zeitgeist wasn't interested, you know? Yeah. And like and like with some artists, Zeitgeist wasn't interested till a hundred years later of what they were doing, you know. So who knows, you know.
2: It's also so interesting too. It's like, you know, everything that I sort of love and thrive, like I'm a big jazz fan Mm -hmm. and i'm a and i'm a big like you know i don't i I, you know i like vietnamese like i don't like things that are in the mainstream so so my whole world has been a little bit outside of of giant popular culture anyway so why would i give a fuck if if everyone doesn't like me like get a clue also your ego to think that like there's people who hate babies and chocolate so why would you be some international exception to a rule that doesn't exist (laughs) babies and chocolate what (laughs) yes they are out there i am one of them
1: that is amazing i'm not gonna go down that road now, Liz Winstead, you have made a—you know—you create Air America and those things, and you, you're making more of a transition into an—I'll say—an activist for one of a better term to describe what you actually do. But let's say activist, and to a finer point, because we're talking about abortion right now, abortion becomes one of your issues. How does how does that happen for you personally? How does that clarify itself to you? So
2: it cl- it's a there's a there's a simple answer. Um... I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex in high school with a creepy mulleted hockey player who had all of the uh compassion of a creepy mulleted hockey player uh and it was just a bad scene catholic you know and like you know when shame. you're not when you shame and mm-hmm. when you don't teach people about birth control like I don't know where the infinite wisdom came from in patriarchal societies that if you just pretend shit doesn't happen, then people aren't going to have sex or whatever. I was literally 16 being like, you know, if I have sex and use birth control um, that's committing two sins. So I'm just going to have sex and not use the right, you know, just shitty, crazy stuff. So I got pregnant and, you know, told him he broke up with me. And then I had to like scrounge up the money and I was desperately trying to find an abortion. And again, this is back in like 1978 Mm -hmm. where home pregnancy tests were not like readily available thing. Mm -hmm. And you, and there wasn't also like, you didn't know where to go to like get tested. Like there, you just had no information. So I saw an ad on a bus that told me to go to this place for free pregnancy tests. And it ended up being one of those creepy anti-abortion um, Wolf and sheep's clothing places. Ooh, it was called like the Southside yeah. Life Center, and then the ad was like free pregnancy tests, choices, options. So I'm like, oh, that's where I'm gonna go, and I went in, and this person literally wearing a lab coat because you know it, it didn't occur to me you just can wear a lab coat when you work at the lawn comb counter at Macy's, but like <laughs> you know you just can. <laughs> um, you know, I peed and and I had a pregnancy test and it came back positive. And then she lied to me about abortion and lectured me and told me my options were mommy or murder, and I was wow. terrified. It was really scary. And so um, you already
1: had enough Catholic guilt working on right? you at the time, right?
2: Catholic guilt and just like all of it, and like, and so I ended up getting back on the bus and seeing an ad for an actual abortion clinic that I didn't know what it was, but I went there anyway, had an abortion, was not traumatized you know, and, you know, truth be told, Larry, I mean, not to get too heavy, but I was 16 with a guy who was like abusive. Mm. And the one thing I knew is that I could, I didn't know how to get out of that relationship. I was immature, but I knew that if I had a kid with this person, I'm never getting out. So I was privileged enough to scrounge. I stole money out of his dad's pants pockets Mm -hmm. to have my abortion.
1: Do you remember how much it cost?
2: $227.
1: Wow. That's that wasn't cheap. Yeah.
2: Mm mm you know, and then I was always pro-choice after that. And I felt really lucky, but I didn't advocate in a way that I should. I would do benefits and that. And then I realized that I didn't. I didn't work hard enough to make sure everybody else could have that available to them. And in 2010, when all of this Wendy Davis, I'm sure if, if people remember, she stood yeah. on the floor of the Texas, Texas. State House in her sneakers and yeah, and I was writing my book at the time. And so I was engrossed in all of the news that was coming in. And 26 other states proposed that exact same law Texas did. And they didn't have a Wendy Davis. And so stuff started happening. And I just started talking to folks. So I was in Minnesota writing my book. And when I finished, I decided to, I had to drive back with my two dogs in a van back to Brooklyn. And I just did this one person fundraising bonanza and drove around the country to learn about what was happening on the ground. And, oh, yeah. I, and I went and visited the clinics and it's the first, every clinic I went to, whether it was the doctor, the owner, or the person that worked at the front desk, somebody would say to me, you know, I, I can't believe you came here. No one ever comes here. Mm-hmm. And it was, it broke my heart because I was like, there were so many activists doing work around raising money to help, you know, poor folks and, and black and brown folks get the care they needed. And there was people who were providing the care. But there was nobody taking care of the people who were providing the abortions. And Mm. if we didn't look out for them and and help help the community they were in embrace them, they're going to die off. They can't do it. You can't go to work every day and walk through a throng of people threatening your life. Mm-hmm. Then when you get in your car, you got to drive home a different direction every day because that person's following you. Then you gotta correct the record on the science and you have to do the legislative work. It's too much. We can't ask that.
1: We've we've thought about rightly so the trauma of the person getting the abortion, but no one's really focused on the trauma of the abortion providers and the yeah. people providing the health care for the for the young ladies. And, and
2: if they're not there. To do it, then all of these people seeking the care aren't going to get it. Right. So I made a big dinner for a whole bunch of comics and graphic designers and people who worked in the entertainment industry that I knew. And I just said, I, I noticed this problem. You know, do you all want to kind of start this thing with me where we go out on the road and do shows and then invite these providers on stage with us and these activists And they talk about what it's like to provide in this community. And then folks who come to our shows can sign up right there. We can grow these local bases. And uh, it's been really successful. And so we also have a whole bunch of crafty ass people on our team. Mm -hmm. And so each clinic we go to, um, a lot of folks don't also realize that if you're providing care in Oklahoma or Ohio or Missouri, Uh, A lot of people won't do your lawn or fix your plumbing or fix your roof because you provide abortion. So we do like massive projects.
1: a scarlet, a it is. Mm -hmm. So
2: we do these massive projects at each clinic to sort of get them up to speed as best we can, and -hmm. then we bring the information of what they need to the audience. And I'll never forget this guy in Oklahoma. He had his hand up the whole time we were talking. (laughs) I was like, I was like, you have something to say. I'm going to I'm going to call on you. And he said. From what I'm hearing from you,
0: uh-huh.
2: you're telling me being an activist means that this clinic hires me and pays me to do their lawn care and, I, and that's activism? And I said, yes, you parking your van in front of that clinic and saying, I'm proud they're in my community. I'm proud to serve them in my community makes you an activist. Yes, mm. sir. And he was like, wow. And I was like, yeah, there's all sorts of ways to be present. Mm-hmm. And to be and to be in the moment and to help people care and to like, and we just all have to do it. So, you know, we do that. But the thing that's the craziest like, mm-hmm.
1: yes.
2: <laughs> is um, so through these tours that we've done and we've done like four of them now, and then mm-hmm. COVID shut us down and we're going to probably go back out in 2022. Uh, we developed this great network of just really cool, small activists who mm-hmm. have, who also know intimately um, the creeps who are outside of those clinics screaming, they know them by name. And so as we were traveling um, and we talked to the next group of clinics, they would be mentioning the same names. And we were like, wait, there's a pattern here. So we started this database, this, and it turns in, out that it's a massive database. And I know this is going to be shocking to your listeners, but um, it turns out that white supremacy is very
1: intersectional.
2: And so it is-
1: um, Damn it, white supremacy. White supremacy,
2: they're doing the most. So the the gun people and the anti-abortion people Mm -hmm. and the uh, racist pigs who are just out there in the world are all the same people. And Mm. so we started following some of these churches and started these fake Facebook accounts and joined these churches. And we were listening to them and listening to them preach about arming their Christian militias and like one ahead of one of the largest um, anti-abortion movements was doing fundraising for Kyle Mm -hmm. Rittenhouse's defense. And so um, we just, this is growing and growing. And so we are able to have this database that abortion clinics can pull from when they see people and learn who they are. But the, but the culmination was on, on January 4th, all of a sudden, all these people we're talking about going to D.C. And so we we assigned people to monitor a bunch of accounts. And we identified 30 anti-abortion extremists who were at the insurrection and turned them over to the FBI. So it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy, you know, and that was a happy accident just out of doing this other work.
1: Oh, white supremacists.
2: Oh, white supremacists. They're really great. I mean, and it's just so wild. Because I love how
1: predictable you are. Oh, so um, much so. So let's talk about what's happening currently with the abortion fight. What's going on in the Supreme Court now? The Supreme, there was a Supreme Court ruling on Friday, I believe, and that had to do with the Texas law.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and just to remind people, of course, I, you know my listeners, I'm sure know what's going on. That Texas law is what we call the vigilante law, which allows just citizens to sue abortion providers and. I call it a
2: pussy (laughs) comitatus.
1: you know, just to sue them, to tie it up in the court. So it it allows the state to have clean hands, Mm -hmm. so to speak, you know, Mm -hmm. in basically uh, nullifying abortion. And this kind of kind of went up to the Supreme Court in one fashion before. Right.
2: Yeah. And it, it went to the Supreme. I mean, just I mean, the clinics brought it to the Supreme Court just on the fact that. A six-week abortion ban goes against the tenets of Roe v. Wade. For people who don't follow this, you know, Mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade is the law in 1973 that said um, it is a, you know, you can constitutionally um, have an abortion up until 24 weeks of pregnancy. Full Mm -hmm. stop. That is the precedent in every state in the union. Mm -hmm. Um, This Texas law had a six-week ban, um, which is wholly unconstitutional and has been declared unconstitutional by 12 other states. And so for the Supreme Court to say, we don't understand this bounty hunting part of the law. So until we figure that out, we're going to allow this very unconstitutional ban to remain in place, which is wholly unheard of.
1: Is this, is this is what they said on Friday?
2: That, no, that's what it, they said. That's what
1: they said initially. Right? Initially.
2: Okay, so on it. Friday... What they said was the because the clinics, when they when they um, went before the court, they said, you know, part of what's in this law is that you weren't allowed to counter sue and you it it, and it was wild. So they said Mm -hmm. you can sue in some cases. So we're going to allow you to sue so that you don't lose your license if you provide care. Um, and that's basically all they said. And we're going to let it remain in place. So what the Supreme Court has done is, A, still people who are um, need to access abortion in Texas cannot. And they have put anybody who wants to help someone, you know, you've heard the Uber driver and the and all of that's true, and any physician, are now in a perpetual state of potentially being in a lawsuit, Uh terrified of that. And so it's also because they allowed it to stay. It gives every state in the union an opportunity to create this exact same Texas law. Uh And so we can have bounty hunting everywhere. Alabama just did it two days ago. Uh And so um, Ohio is talking about doing it. You know, it's not just the South. And so it's really putting it um, into a glaring place anybody seeking care people want to help people provide the care and anybody who's just helping facilitate someone to access the care could just all be constantly sued by these third parties deputizing anybody
1: it's crazy to be
2: able to sue you and 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 there's so many different parts of this law that that the supreme court allowed to remain that is disgusting one is that larry if if you and i were walking by a planned parenthood on our way to lunch, Mm -hmm. somebody could say, Larry's with Liz Winstead, and she's an abortion rights advocate. I'm going to sue him because I think that he is having nefarious conversation and he's going to aid somebody in helping an abortion. They need no proof. You would get a lawyer. You would have to pay legal fees. And even though it was frivolous and they would find out that that wasn't the case, you don't get restitution for your legal fees.
1: This is crazy. This is guilty until proven innocent. 100 percent this is like under some of those like drug seizure uh things that were going on where you had to prove you were innocent of these things after the government took everything from you
2: and who who are the people that suffer the most you know black and brown folks you know it is very much um they've been they've been criminalizing black bodies for a long time what happens to incarcerated pregnant people and pregnant women is just unbelievable, you know, charging people with crimes, you know, giving personhood to their pregnancy and taking the, you know, their humanity away. Um, It's in a really bad place and it's, it's, it's feeling really scary. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, my ask of everyone now is uh, we're at a place where we, as a, as a society, need to step up with our voices and our faces and our bodies and and be a show of force to say we will not tolerate um, someone's humanity being stripped from them by an illegitimate Supreme Court. We won't do it. And the legislators who are going to vote for it, you won't have jobs. We It can no longer be on the backs of women, and particularly on the box, backs of Black women, because that's where it's falling.
1: And poor women, women without means. Yeah, you know, 100%. Which is 100%. You know, always is the case, too. What Do you think Roe v. Wade gets overturned? Do you think that's going to happen?
2: Yes. And, and it's already happened in so many states without even having to overturn it. Yeah,
1: the getting around it is one thing, but the actual ruling, like, I'm not sure, like, Justice Roberts always surprises people with how he rules on these things, you know, and I don't know if he would be a deciding vote because we have a lopsided court right now, of course, you know, because he he did, like, intimate that he felt this was a nullification of Roe v. Wade. Um, he also
2: felt it was a nullification of precedent and of the court
1: which is very strong he
2: said you know texas has purposely crafted a way to go around the court system of accountability Mm -hmm. and if we allow that to stand then we don't have then you know as 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 sonia sotomayor said um the stench of this court is is just a problem and so I think it. I think this. There's a you know the Mississippi case that we heard last week, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is a 15 week ban, which is again struck down twice,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: yet the court took it anyway for some weird reason. Um, if that if they uphold this 15 week ban, which everyone believes they will, Amy Coney Barrett saying things like, "Well, people have the opportunity to just drop off a baby at a safe haven like a firehouse. Shouldn't that solve the abortion problem?" And it's like, no. Pregnancy is hard on your body. People Mm -hmm. die in pregnancy. We're not potting soil, bitch. Like, what are you talking about? So um, if that happens, 12 states will immediately ban abortion in all cases. There's Mm. another there's another 12 states that because they have it's literally called a trigger law. And if Roe v. Wade is gone, it's triggered.
1: Yeah. So explain exactly what that what trigger laws are so people know how fast these things can happen. Can you explain that?
2: Sure. So a lot of states um, understanding the inevitability of this Mm -hmm. put a put a law in place that said if Roe v. Wade um, is overturned by the Supreme Court, they have a law in the books that will instantly go into effect that will ban all abortion in any case in their state. So they crazy.
1: They can have if come laws. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Crazy. It's
2: crazy. And that's 12 states. There's 12 other states that um, have legisl have legislation that's um, sitting in the courts right now. That is, as of now, unconstitutional and is so the courts have said your shitty law can't go into effect. And but if this happens, then those other 12 states, those laws then will become in effect. So mm-hmm. right now they're not in effect. Uh, and so if that's 24 states. And then there's two states that people are convinced will start proposing laws instantly. And we're talking about almost 100 million people mm-hmm. of reproductive age that could be affected. And you know, the statistic of abortion is that one in four people in, in their reproductive lifetime will have it. And so it's, you're, you're gonna, there's people who are of low income, they can't travel to have abortions. Mm -hmm. They can't take time off of work. They don't have work sometimes, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's just a way of really shaming and devaluing people and poor people and, and having patriarchy just solidified in our society. And it's, it's just wholly terrible. It just really feels, um, I don't mean to sound like a total downer, but you know, if we, if we decide that uh, we care as a, as a group. And we decide that those of us and, and so many of us who have been
1: mm-hmm.
2: outraged, but not activated. Um, now is the time to stand up with, with all your folks and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show my face and I'm going to use my voice because it's, it's just, it's, it's a real scary time for a lot of really vulnerable people on top of all the other stuff.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you this Liz, Cause you know, as a writer, you know, like yourself, you know, in comedy. You know, words are very important to me in how we argue, and I think we get into times where you can't use the same type of arguments when you're in different times because they just represent different things, you know. And um, I was struck when you said patriarchy, and I I don't know if for me, this is just me talking. I don't know if that's the right um, conflict now. Let's say because it's to me, it's not just what it what that represented before where there was a clear fight it seemed between feminism and the patriarchy about this issue, especially with the ERA and that type of thing. Right. But it seems to me it's, it's a different type of thing that's going on. You talked about Amy Coney, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. Barrett or whatever, but there are many women on the forefront of that side, you know, who in the fight is coming out of, you know, a different place than what would be the normal patriarchy type of stuff, I guess, you know, there's something else going on here that I'm trying to put my finger on. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, you know, it's a different type of taking sides. I believe, you know, even though there's some of the same Venn diagram stuff going on. I I know I'm kind of vague right now. I wish there was another way to pierce this so we could have some, some good, uh, a lot of good fighting tools against it. Yeah, you know?
2: I mean, I think really what it boils down to is a women benefit from the patriarchy and know that and white women have a long time and they'll fight, they'll fight to make sure that that power dynamic happens. But I think more to the point, um, as we have watched the absolute conspiracy theory and just blatant, racism and sexism you know there's no dog whistles anymore there's none of that Mm -hmm. it's just like all out there now Mm -hmm. um I think that what we need to understand is this conspiracy theory, theory world that we live in that is spilling over into all of our lives and I think anybody who is demanding an equal shot at the world and who challenges the the norms of the people who are now in charge who are wholly incompetent and terrifying, any avenue with which you can suppress their uh, ability to take power, make change, um, become, you know, part of a new structure of people who are going to be making plans, um, they're going to try to destroy any avenue you have to do that. And, you know, you look at it constantly. Um, You know, when you look at Lauren Boebert or you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or you Mm -hmm. look at you know, Amy Coney Barrett or any of these people they're advocating for an existing world that oppresses most of us. And they think they're gonna, they think that, that they're going to win. And it's like, are you trying to please your dad who ignored you? Cause that's what I feel like they're all just had dads who ignored them. Mm-hmm. And so they just want men to know that they're okay. And it's like, I don't, I don't understand where you think you're going to benefit at the end of this fight that you're fighting.
1: Yeah, I feel personally that it was the imposition of religion in the Republican parties, you know, with the moral majority that is the starting point for a lot of this because people don't realize, you know, Republican women... And Democratic women were united on abortion for a long time. You know mm-hmm. the the, mm-hmm. the the left of both parties because both parties used to have right and left factions to them, but the the women on the left and, uh, who were Republicans and of course Democrats because there were conservative Democrats people got to remember too. We had Dixiecrats and all kinds of oh uh, you know <laughs> all kinds of the stuff Robert
2: Byrd wing of the party was not awesome
1: exactly you know. But uh, I feel like religion is an under talked about issue here. And that's what I, I'm saying too. Like even uh, someone like Amy Coney. Uh,
2: Anderson. I'm just going to give you different last names every
1: time. Here's what happens. As soon as I start to say her name, Anita Bryant comes into my head because I feel <laughs> no? like, I feel like it's the same person.
2: <laughs> it's not, It's not. I mean, it's that's not fair. Too
1: far off. Yeah. Uh, that's what I want to say. But there's some, to me, I think religion is, is being put in here that people aren't talked about. And that's one of the sticking points. For a lot of this point of view, which actually would support the patriarchal argument, you know, in many ways, too, you know, from a different standpoint. And
2: and especially, you know, when you look at Liberty University and how,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, it was like all of a sudden became uh, out of fashion to be completely overtly racist and they could mm-hmm. not allow, they could right. turn, turn abortion into their social issue. And when yes. you look at, um, I highly recommend everybody to, um, if, you, if you're looking for a, a, a way to contextualize a lot of this watch Mrs. America the Netflix oh, series that. on Phyllis Schlafly awesome. because she was somebody who was um, ignored by all of the men in the Republican Party because you know she was like a big war-mongering mm-hmm. nightmare and they didn't they ignored her and then she became an anti-abortion crusader because that was where she could find her power yeah. and you really do see everything you're talking about in this and her proposing this insane, a uh, false world of of like roles and housewives yeah. and and being surrounded by women of color who worked for her who were never allowed the same opportunities to you know stay at home and raise their own kids i mean it was like it's a very good um sort of structure of how 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 this uh moral majority uh came to be yeah. and just um you know and how the fight went and how the fight was won and how and where it was lost and Holds Democrats, rightly so, hand them their accountability piece that we often don't talk about.
1: So Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So what do you think? Because I think that's where there's a layered thing happening there where I think religion is in there, embedded in there for Mm -hmm. a lot of people in there. And we know how people feel with that. I mean, even when you're going through your thing, religion plays a part in that with the guilt and the shame and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how? What do you think is the best way for people to fight against these forces that are trying to overturn Roe v. Wade? What can people do?
2: I think there's a couple of things. I think people need to prioritize your local elections because mm. these laws come out of state houses mm-hmm. and are signed by governors. And yes. you have a much stronger chance of if you pay attention to oust some people who are proposing this stuff or making sure they don't get in because there's a court system that it goes through now that has been stacked. So that's one thing, really pay attention that way.
0: Local um, level. Mm-hmm.
2: Local level. Uh, I would say, you know, if you if there is an event that is where there's a lot of people going, you don't necessarily need to get arrested, but, mm-hmm. you know, showing up <laughs> and saying, you know, um, I'm I'm here and I don't want this to be a fight that only women are shouldering because I actually right. care about the humanity of, of women and all the people that can get pregnant.
0: Exactly. So that's a
2: thing. And then also for my men friends out there, like, I just, we've been really bad at, at really just telling men how they can be supportive. You know, I think that the reaction was shut up, don't say anything. It's not your fight. and And it really is. And so for my men friends, I just want to say like, you know, do a little self check in and be like, you know, most of my partners paid for the birth control. Like I didn't really have to shoulder that or, you know, how is my life better because of birth control or mm. because like you're in a relationship that you kind of knew wasn't going to be the one if that's a thing and somebody got pregnant and you had an abortion and you both got to go on and and really pursue where you're at, like really understand how pivotal um birth control and abortion and, and, you know, all that reproductive choices, like helped you out mm-hmm. and, and let that guide you a little bit and say that, you know, and, and, um and for my men comedy friends out there, we want to do a big comedy show in LA where it's just all men who are like, you oh. know, this is, this is the least I can do. Yeah, I can yeah, show yeah. up and do this and have it be like, this is the least I can do comedy show with like the best guys. So, um you know, just, I just think that's it. I mean, just, just be there and don't, and, And don't marginalize it. it's somebody's self-determination and deciding whether, when, and if they can parent is the number one decision you'll make that alters the entire rest of your life, understand the profundity of that. And so when someone's prioritizing that in a conversation, um, you know, be there and support that. So those are things you can do. And also pay attention to who you're going to be running for secretary of state in your state because that person's mm-hmm. gonna certify elections and you want somebody who's gonna certify elections and make sure that um, they aren't thrown. So those are, those are some things. And, and go to abortion access front. And if you wanna like be passive, and like we have all kinds of programs where we like right now we have an adopt a clinic program where so many clinics right now are dealing with the onslaught from Texas. Yeah, like I was um, going to
1: ask you about that because yeah. that's, that's where people can help directly. No,
2: so you can help directly. You can donate to us, obviously. But also if you want to get together with a bunch of friends and and we have clinics who have wish lists, you know, doing aftercare packages for patients, mm. making sure that oh, their, great. their staff can yeah, get that's awesome. um, a child care. Sometimes staff needs like extra money for child care when they're running late, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and those things are really great. So if you go to aafront.org slash resources, okay. uh, that lists all the different ways that you can help large and small. Um, and if you've got five minutes, we've got something for you to do. If you want to come and do stuff, you can do that.
1: Last thing I'll ask you about, and thanks so much, Liz. You just this God, has I, been
2: such a great combo. I, I hope I to wasn't your... too serious. <laughs> no,
1: are you kidding me? You're fantastic. You, I mean, I I know my listeners would want to hear you talk for a couple of hours. I'm sure you know.
2: It's so great. I also have to say to you, Larry. Like I'm a big insecure fan, and oh. it's great. I love it so much. But and I love the show so much. But I have to say, the secondary thing that I love the most is that. I'm so busy that every I Shazam every song and like I am learning about awesome music, not only loving just the show, but like the music part is key for me. Music is key for me and I love it. So thank you.
1: Well, yeah, I can't take credit for all that. As you know, I helped launch the show, but uh, you know, they're they're all my friends and I love all But of them. It's so
2: good. Like the music part is like don't. No,
1: they're crushing it. No, they've been yeah. crushing it from the crushing
2: beginning. Crushing it.
1: Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. That's so nice. Get some mutual love here going. One last thing I want to ask you about. Um, I heard some rumors that California uh, was thinking of becoming an abortion sanctuary state. What does that mean? And I hope that doesn't happen because that means that it has to do that, which I hope doesn't happen. But yeah. what, is, what does that mean exactly?
2: So I think that there's... Um, I think it's a slight misnomer. I think what it means is they're going to try to financially help people um, who need abortions be able to come to California and get abortions. And that is noble. And we need states to do that. But truth be told, we don't have capacity right now.
1: I was going to say facilitate
2: (laughs) the amount of people who would need to travel and people can't travel. I know people can't leave their kids. You know, 65% of people who have abortions are already parents. So it's, it's well, and also the sanctuary state thing, very quickly, if a hundred nearly a hundred million people are going to be having to travel distances for care, the States that are have better laws don't have the facilities with which to do it. So one thing to look for, and I, and I'll stop this on Thursday, the FDA is going to rule on whether or not they're going to take medication abortion off this. Um, it's on a list of drugs that um, they say are s- only a physician can transcribe. And is that was the uh, their-
1: plan B type of thing. Or the- it,
2: it, plan B is not plan B is birth control. This oh, is called okay. medication abortion. So oh,
1: okay. All right.
2: if they do, that means that uh, abortion pills, which now you can only get at a clinic um, will be available through the mail and will be available through uh, a pharmacy. Um, and so that will open up access to abortion care in a way that is profound. So let's hope that the FDA does the right thing. And then we can figure out how administration of those pills go. And, and that's going to help a lot for rural people who live in rural areas, people who don't have access and have to travel. Um, and uh, it is a safe and, incredibly effective easy way to um, have a procedure at home in the privacy that nobody needs to know about
1: and that is the way that i've always put this when like i don't even think i was saying this in my podcast a little while ago when people are saying arguments against abortion my to me the argument for it is like it's actually just none of your business i don't have to give you a reason women don't have to give a reason why they have an abortion because it's none of your business it's a privacy issue Turns
2: out, because I want one. And you know what, you let me deal with my relationship with my God, if there if that relationship exists, don't you worry about me, or any of that you just worry about your own self. And my guess is that your God would think you are a total douchebag if you are screaming at people outside of a clinic when there's plenty of other things God put on earth for you to do that are more interesting and fucking productive. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there you go everybody liz winston she's great before she goes our mutual friend i just want to give some more flowers out to our mutual friend joe miller who we both love joe today. miller just just shouting out joe just you know just for no reason but just to give her some love because we love joe. love oh my god uh, she is
2: the literal best just had a slumber party with her on thanksgiving nah, was a lot of fun that's
1: great i love hearing that uh liz winston and it's abortion access for front is that the name of the organization
2: that is the name of the organization yeah and if you're in the twin cities come see me perform do it the year in review shows at the cedar cultural center
1: it's on stage it's live you got live entertainment thanks liz it's so great talking to you
2: thanks larry